God, we do ask and pray that verse 30 would be true here in the next couple of moments as we turn to your word, that Jesus would increase and that we would decrease. Yet, your Lord, we know that that's only possible through the work of your spirit and the power of your word. So, God, we pray that you would use the next couple of moments to shape us and to conform us. Lord, you know that we live in a time of year in which the culture around us is trying to convince us to chase a warm, fuzzy feeling in order to be satisfied, to accumulate more possessions in order to be happy. And yet, yet, yet God, we know that Jesus alone satisfies. So God, convince us of that truth, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I would assume that most of us in this room have taken part in what is called a selfie before. If you're unsure of what a selfie is, a selfie is a picture taken of oneself, usually with a smartphone, that is typically posted on social media. You kind of hold out your phone like this, you take a picture, and it involves yourself and maybe some other people. Now, what you may not know, but you might kind of pick up on, taking a good selfie has become an indispensable skill in 2018. So much so that the sale of selfie sticks is on the rise since 2015. A selfie stick, kind of put your phone on the stick and it gives you a longer reach and just a better um, picture. Now before you think that a good selfie stick might be a nice stocking stuffer for Christmas, you need to know that there's a growing number of people who are looking at selfies and thinking that they're actually doing more harm than good. In all seriousness, selfies, though they can be fun and a a cool way to capture a moment, they can also be fatal. In, 2000 people, in 2015, more people died from taking selfies than from shark attacks. Almost 300 people have died over the last couple of years. So you have these individuals, this is so interesting, who are they're trying to capture the very best picture of themselves and maybe the scenery behind them so they can share it with friends, put it on social media, but it's actually leading to their own destruction. Sounds like a good sermon illustration here. They're falling off cliffs, they're drowning in oceans, they're falling off buildings, they're even being eaten by wild animals, and so on and so forth. You have tourist destinations who have gone as far as uh, as kind of roping areas off as being a selfie-free zone for others' protection. Even the notoriously unsympathetic Russian government has issued a manual on how to take a selfie safely. True story. Look, our, our culture's need, and I would probably say our culture's obsession to capture the present moments on social media or on their phones is dramatically changing the way that we experience life. And, and there's even a tragic irony when that actually leads to death. Now, I'm not anti-selfie by any means. I've taken lots of selfies. I don't think that they're inherently sinful But I think that we can all agree that at times, selfies can be a symptom of a heart that is self-absorbed, especially when they're leading to death. That selfies are a snapshot, pun intended, of a heart where there's there's something going on beneath the surface. That, That there's this voice that is crying out, screaming out to the world, focus on me, validate me, put the spotlight on me. There's this, this need in order for other people to approve us. Now, again, I'm, I don't think every selfie has that type of motivation, but many do. 
And, and yet again, there's something underneath a selfie that we all face. It's the temptation to listen to that voice in countless ways, even besides taking a good selfie. It's to take that selfie mindset and to apply it to our relationships, apply it to our marriages, to our parenting, to who we are at the workplace, and even to our relationship with God, where we want, even with our relationship with God, we want everything to revolve around me. We want ourselves to look good. We want ourselves to feel good. Now, I'm not proposing that we outlaw uh, selfies, but I am proposing that there is this destructive root issue in every one of our hearts that's self-centered, that's self-absorbed, and that wants the validation from other people. Look, we need something much more powerful than creating a selfie-free zone. I think what we need is what this passage of Scripture shows us in the example that John the Baptist uh, shows us in John chapter 3. John the Baptist is a man who is captured by the beauty of Jesus, and he shows us the pathway to contentment that I think we desperately need, especially during the holiday season. So what I want to do with this passage, I want to just set the scene for a moment, kind of explain what's going on, and then I want us to zone in and zoom in on John the Baptist at the pathway uh, to contentment. Okay, so number one, what's going on in this scene? Well, in verse 22, we find Jesus, who is with his disciples, and they have traveled to the rural part of the Judean countryside, and they're there hanging out and baptizing. We don't know how many uh, disciples there are exactly at this point in time. We know that there are at least five, probably more. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 2, we know that Jesus isn't the one that's baptizing, but his disciples are baptizing, and they're there hanging out. Verse 23 tells us, interesting enough, that John the Baptist is also near them. He's also with his disciples, and they are also baptizing people. We see crowds are coming to, uh, to both groups of people. And so that is the scene that is set before us. The stage is set. You have these two preachers who are incredibly popular during this time, both with their disciples, both baptizing, both having groups of people coming to them. And then the story zooms in and focuses on a discussion that's taken place. Now, if you look at verse 25, it says, now a discussion arose. That sounds like something that I would tell a friend of uh, an argument that my wife and I would have. We were just having a, a marital discussion. Right? It's kind of a, a code name for something. And I think that's what's going on here, that they were having a discussion, a, a debate, a controversy over the purpose of John's baptism and, and how it involves this idea of purification. Now, I can imagine what this discussion was like, that this Jew was coming to uh, some of John the Baptist's disciples, and he's probably asking them, like, what does John's baptism actually mean? Like, after you're baptized, are is all your sin taken away? Are you fully cleansed? Like, how does one atone for your sin? What do we do with the temple and, and the sacrifices? Have we, have we been doing them all for, for no purpose? Look, those are really good questions. Those are questions that many have wrestled with for hundreds of years because John's baptism, again, happened before the cross of Christ. And just for our purpose here this morning, the, the purpose of John's baptism what we need to understand and be reminded of is that the practice of baptism was intimately connected with his preaching of repentance. In fact, his baptism was an expression of his preaching of repentance. 
Mark chapter 1, verse 4 explains that. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is important because in the Jewish culture, there was a close association between water and purification, and by extension, uh, repentance. All over the Old Testament, there are references to people and clothing and inanimate objects that needed to be washed in order to be purified because it touched someone or something that was ceremonially unclean. And so this purification from a ritual uncleanness was a common symbol from turning from and being forgiven of your sins. They were intimately connected. Psalm 51, for example, you have the repentant David who calls out to God and says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And so for the Jew, especially during this time and in the Old Testament, the baptism and the the act of going under was, was a way for their sins to be forgiven as part of their ceremonial cleansing. And that was even true in the, in the New Testament during this time period, that this idea of baptism and being cleansed was very, very important. In fact, if you were a Gentile wanting to convert to Judaism, you not only had to be circumcised, you not only had to perform some sacrifices in the temple, but at this point in time, you also had to be baptized through immersion. You had to have your sins be purified and to be taken away. And this is where the controversy, I think, was centered upon in verse 25. See, John the Baptist used that that same imagery of baptism, used it in almost the exact same way as the prophets and the Jewish leaders during this time, but he preached something different than the Jewish leaders. What John the Baptist preached about and what we believe is that baptism is a sign of a reality that's taken place in your life, that it's an outward expression of what God has done in your life, that he would preach to repent, to turn from your sins and make way for the Messiah to come in. And the Jews at this time were confused. Like, wait, 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 no, no, no. Baptism is part of the means by which we have our sins forgiven. It's not a sign. It's not an expression of repentance. And so you have John the Baptist's disciples who are kind of going back and forth with this Jew. They're probably getting flustered because John the Baptist's disciples were were focused on ushering in this new kingdom of God for the Messiah. And so they're probably growing frustrated. And furthermore, they look over at this guy, Jesus, who is also baptizing. He's doing the same thing that John the Baptist is doing, and yet he is drawing in a larger crowd. And so John the Baptist's disciples are growing flustered, they're growing in in annoyance, so they come to John the Baptist, and they say to him, what is going on here? Like, like what what is this Jesus guy doing? He's baptizing, but he's got a bigger crowd than us. You can imagine them almost saying, like, John the Baptist, we, we need to increase our ministry to the next level. We need to do something to kind of match this crowd that's following Jesus. Do you you see what's going on here? The disciples of John the Baptist were not only receiving pushback because of of the purpose of John's baptism, but they were also viewing Jesus' ministry as competition. They see that Jesus' ministry, the numbers, are bigger than theirs. They even say that 
all are going to him. All are going to Jesus, which simply was not true because of verse 23. But look, that's often how it feels when you're comparing and when you're competing with others and they have something more than you. Look, this is, this is something that we can all relate with. Now, that feeling of someone having something that you want or someone having something more than what you currently have. It's that, that feeling that starts to bubble up inside that can so easily lead to envy to jealousy, to covetousness, if we're not careful. Look, what I think we're seeing here with John the Baptist's disciples, we're seeing a picture of discontentment. It's that thought of, man, if I could just have that person's job, I'd be happy. Or, man, I wish my kids were well-behaved like, like those kids are. Or I wish I had that kind of relationship. Or I wish I could go through a season of life where I wouldn't suffer like this person See, what we're seeing here is, is something that we all struggle with. It's that thought that comes into our mind and says, if I have that, then I'll be happy. If I have that, then I'll be satisfied. We've got to be careful of discontentment. Discontentment might be one of the greatest traps in our culture today. It might be greater than, than greed, than lust, than even lying, because if you think about it, discontentment is actually driving a lot of those sins. Like, I've yet to meet somebody who's engaged in infidelity, who did not first struggle with discontentment. I've yet to meet somebody who's a liar, who's an idolater, who's a drunkard, who's a gossiper, who did not, yet, who did not first fall into discontentment. Look, we've, we've all been there, if we're really honest. And some of us are probably there this morning. You're wrestling with discontentment, especially during the holiday season. Like, I just want to kind of call that out here this morning. We can, we can put on our best. We can put on our smiles. We can have the parties. We can get together with family and have good traditions. But underneath the surface, in our hearts, there is a war that is being waged upon your satisfaction in Jesus. And we have to be on guard. Because discontentment wants to invade and take over that throne within our hearts. And so what do we do? What do we do when those thoughts start to creep in? When, when those temptations start to kind of choke out the joy that we have in Christ? So I think John the Baptist helps us here in verses 27 through 30. Looking at John the Baptist's response, I think that we can see the path to contentment. In fact, I think there are four steps that he lays out that I'm going to highlight here. And the reason why I think this is important is because it feels like the entire world is colluding, trying to stir up discontentment in our hearts. Don't you feel like that sometimes? Like every commercial, every billboard, every brochure seems like this voice that's screaming out at us, you need more in order to be happy. You need more in order to be somebody. Like John the Baptist felt that way. He's got his own disciples coming up to him saying, Look at Jesus' ministry. He's got more than you. More people are coming. And so do we just kind of submit to that stream, that narrative, and, and compete and compare? Or is there another way? The Apostle Paul would claim that there's another way. In fact, I'm sure you're all thinking about Philippians 4. He says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know both how to have a little and I know how to have a lot. 
in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Paul says that contentment is something that you can learn. And what he's saying here is even in the midst of hard things, not, not seeing another ministry grow past yours, but harder things like unwanted singleness, an unhappy marriage, infertility, maybe having a profound disappointment with your career or financial difficulties or some type of terminal illness, like those harder things, what Paul is claiming here that contentment is possible, contentment is something that you can learn, and contentment is something that can be cultivated. I think John the Baptist will show us the way. Okay, so four steps here uh, towards contentment that I'll just highlight. Here's the first one. John the Baptist is trying to teach us to recognize the gift giver. Recognize the gift giver in verse 27. Notice what he says here in response to his disciples. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Look, in learning contentment, this is the place to start. That John the Baptist says, in learning contentment, where contentment comes from, it first comes from where you look and what you believe, not from what you have. That contentment is all about how you understand where all that you have comes from and why. See, what John the Baptist is saying here is that all of the gifts that we have come from the hand of God, including how large and how small your ministry That John the Baptist wants us to have this high view of God and his sovereignty, that God's sovereign hand is behind everything that we have and everything that we experience. The Apostle Paul echoes this same truth in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, everything that we have comes straight from the hand of God of God. Look, this is a really helpful way in in dealing with someone else's success. Like when you see someone else who has the job that you want or the relationship that you want or the money that you want, if we really believe verse 27, in that moment, your heart will not run to envy and jealousy, but it will run towards thankfulness to God because you recognize that job that that person had, that's a gift from God. Praise God for God's generosity. Give thanks to God because that person just got a gift from the Lord. It, it protects us from running into envy and covetousness. This is also a great way to handle your own success. When you do get that promotion or you do get that bonus or when you're in a healthy relationship, be reminded that everything you have, including your personality, including your work ethic, including your network, all of it is a gift from the hand of God. Let me give you a test to know if you actually believe verse 27. How consistent is, is your thankfulness to God? Do you have a regular rhythm in your relationship with the Lord of gratitude? Or does that just happen during Thanksgiving or during Christmas time? Like your regular rhythm of being thankful to God is evidence that you believe everything you have comes from the hand of God. I love John's response here because I think John is living in this freedom that comes when you embrace a high view of God's sovereignty, when you believe that everything is from the hand 
of the Lord. And that John actually uses verse 27 to fuel his gratitude. This is a way that we can combat entitlement, this idea that we deserve everything that we have. And so we first, we need to recognize the gift giver. Not only that, but number two, another step on this path of contentment is to embrace your limitations. To embrace your limitations. Look at verse 28. John the Baptist demonstrates for us a way to embrace your humanity and live within your limitations. Look at what he says here. He goes, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Son of God. I'm John the Baptist. <laughs> like John is showing us. He's like, I understand my role. I understand my limitations. I understand my humanity. And I'm not going to try to live outside of that and compete with Jesus' ministry. See, embracing our humanity, living within our limitations, actually leads us towards contentment. Here's how. There's a, a danger when you and I disregard our own humanity and we start to try to live beyond our limitations. When we think that we can be everywhere at once, we can fill up that calendar, we, we try to fix all of the problems around us, we try to know all things, and the problem with that is that we're not omniscient, we're not omnipresent, we're not omnipotent, only God is, and we are not God. And so we need to be reminded about who we are, how God has created us, the healthy and the right limitations that he has put upon our lives. Because look, and we all feel this, especially during this time, there is something unhealthy that takes place when we live beyond our limitations. Our schedules get too full, the workload burns us out, our time with the Lord gets choked out, our time with the family feels like leftovers, and all of that is indicative of a heart that is not content and of a heart that is failing to live within its own limitations. And some of that comes from just trying to keep up with the Joneses. Like some of that is because we're just not content with what we have. We need more. Throw another meeting, throw another this, throw another that, and it moves us into a place of becoming unhealthy, even within our own soul. Look, when, when was the last time that you said no to something or someone? Not, not to be mean to them, but because you know that by saying yes, it's going to lead you towards unhealthiness. That whenever you say yes to something, you are saying no to something else. And oftentimes for us, what we're saying no to, we're saying no to, to time with the Lord, balance, sleep, unhurried time with friends and family, margin for our souls just to breathe and for us to grow spiritually. Look, I know, I know John the Baptist felt this temptation as his disciples come up to them. I'm sure they felt deep down they need to kind of keep up with Jesus' numbers Maybe they said to themselves, man, we need to work harder. Let's stay out later. Let's draw more people in. Let's raise that baptism number to compete with Jesus' ministry. And yet John the Baptist says, I'm not, not the Christ. It's not who I am. That's not how God has created me. And look, some of us probably need to practice the discipline of looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, I'm not God. Or I'm not fill in the blank of who you're trying to keep up with and compete with. I'm not the Joneses. Learning the regular rhythm of saying no and living within your limits. Next thing here I want to point out for us that John the Baptist does beautifully is that joy in Christ actually becomes the fuel 
for contentment. Joy in Christ becomes the fuel for contentment. Look at verse 29. He uses an imagery of a Jewish wedding ceremony to teach us about what it means to have joy in Christ. Now, this is very different than our weddings here in the 21st century as we looked at the wedding in Cana a few weeks ago. But what John is doing here, he's calling Jesus the groom, and he's calling himself the best man. And what he's trying to show us is that you can have as much joy in Christ as the best man does for the, for the, uh, for the groom who is totally satisfied with his bride on the wedding day. Think about that for a moment. That is a, a high picture of the type of satisfaction that we can have in Jesus. Now, for those of us, we are kind of confused about the role of a best man in the first century. So let me just maybe explain what, uh, what the best man would do. This is from uh, William Barclay, who's wrote a, a terrific commentary on the book of John. He says this about the best man. The friend of the bridegroom had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted at a, as a liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together, and he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and he let him in, and he went away rejoicing for his task was completed. Now, first in the 21st century, that would be a very awkward role to have as the best man. That's probably not something that any of us really would want. But the point is, is that the best man's joy was wrapped up in the groom's satisfaction with his bride. And look, that is a wonderful picture, a very instructive picture of what our role should be in our relationship with Jesus that our joy is to be found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone and pointing people to who Jesus actually is. And yet the problem is we don't like our role. Sometimes we, we, we want to push the groom out of the way and we want the spotlight. We want people to validate ourselves. We want the approval of others. We want to be in that spotlight. But oftentimes we're not content with what God has given us as the best man, we, we want something more. Look, in wrestling with this and thinking through the, the disciples of John the Baptist, I'm just wondering why. Like, why do we struggle with contentment so much? All of us do. All of us. Even if we have Jesus, like we still fall into this so often, especially during the Christmas time. Why? Well, I just, I just want to unpack that a little bit more. Let me talk about the four deadly seas of joy, just for a moment, because I think that oftentimes um, these seas that I'll unpack here in a moment tends to be the source of our discontentment. Okay, this is something I think the disciples of John the Baptist wrestled with as well. Here are the four deadly seas of joy. Here's number one. See if these resonate with you. Number one is complacency. I think complacency, when you stop growing in your relationship with Jesus, when you stop deepening your love for Jesus, that's when your joy in him starts to dry up. Like one of the quickest ways to developing a discontented heart is when you become stagnant in your relationship with Jesus. Look, there's no neutral ground spiritually in our walk with the Lord. You're either walking towards him or you're walking away from him. 
Like we sometimes just want to like hold ground, and yet that's not really possible spiritually. When you're not being satisfied with Jesus, our hearts are going to look elsewhere in order to find that satisfaction that we yearn for. And that's where discontentment starts to develop in our lives when we're complacent. I really think that joy and growth are two sides to the same coin of contentment. Like, or you can almost look at them like two aspects to this never-ending cycle of contentment. That the more joy you have in Christ, the more growth you're going to have in Christ. The more growth that you have, the more joy you're going to have in Christ. And it just keeps going and going and going. And when you participate in that type of endless cycle, that is when you find contentment. It's by being satisfied in Jesus and growing closer to him. Even Psalm 34.10 alludes to this. It says, those that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. In other words, when you are seeking the Lord, when you are growing, you will find the satisfaction that your heart is yearning for. But complacency can stifle our joy. Secondly, another C for us is circumstantial joy. Circumstantial joy. In other words, when we find our satisfaction in the circumstances around us. But because contentment, listen to this, because contentment works from the inside out, Contentment is often shielded from the ever-changing circumstances outside of us. That when our contentment is truly in Christ, the circumstances outside of our hearts, they can't touch the contentment. They can't get at that because our contentment is wrapped up in Jesus. Like what did Paul say in Philippians 4? We just read this a couple of minutes ago. He learned the secret of contentment. He said, in any and every circumstance. It doesn't matter what Paul went through. He was content and satisfied in Christ. But do you, do you find yourself uh, moving and shifting your contentment and your joy depending on what you're going through? Like when things are good, when things are easy, do you have a high joy level, high contentment, but, but when you're struggling, going through a trial, do, is your contentment and joy all over the place? Look, that, if that's the case, that might be the, the reason for that is that your joy is actually found in your circumstances and not in Christ Jesus. Your joy might be dependent on that number in your savings account or on your health or on your relationship status. And the thing about that is all those things shift and change. And, and oftentimes they're outside of our control. And so if your joy is found in those things, it's always going to be a moving target, but if it's found in Christ, it will never be shaken. I said this before, but I think Christians should be the most satisfied and joy-filled people on the face of the planet. Not because our lives are easier, not because our circumstances never change, but because what we have in Jesus will never be taken away. So circumstantial joy can be a killer of our joy. Thirdly here, another C is complaining complaining. Like having a, a spirit of woe is me is a sure way to suck the joy out of your soul. And when you look at the glass of your life as being half empty and you let everybody know about that, you complain to God about that, that that's actually one of the problems that John the Baptist's disciples actually have here. But did you know that, that thankfulness can actually fuel your joy in Christ? That when you're giving thanks for what God has done in your life, 
that actually creates more joy and more satisfaction in Jesus, leading to a greater contentment in him. Now, why is that the case? Well, the reason for that is because you become what you behold. When you're focused on Jesus, when you're looking at Jesus and all that he's done for you, your desires and your satisfaction for Jesus grows, leading you to a greater sense of contentment. But when your eyes are beholden and looking at the circumstances of your life or why your life isn't turning out the way that you want it to, that's what your heart is going to be filled up with, leading you to discontentment. And oftentimes this leads us to complaining to others. The last comparison, the last C I want to point out for us is comparison. Now, this is a big one here. I think all four of these C's are connected in some way, but I think this was the chief struggle for the disciples of John the Baptist. See, when we compare and compete with other people, we're always going to find somebody that has more than us. Like, it, that's the comparison trap. When you're trying to, to, to have a, a greater job than somebody or more money or a better relationship or fill in the blank, someone out there has something more. In fact, if, if I had everything that I wanted, I still would not be satisfied. If I had everything that I covet, I still would be yearning for more. Let me give you an example of that. Do you remember that, that interview that Tom Brady did on 60 Minutes a few years ago? Can I say Tom Brady from the, from the pulpit with a bunch of Colts fans? But Tom Brady, in this interview, if you remember, a few years ago, he's, he's there. He's like, man, I've got all these Super Bowls, all these MVPs, all these victories over the, Col- over the Colts team, and I've married a, even a supermodel. And then he stares in the, in, the, in the camera, and he says, but still not satisfies me. Can someone please tell me what will satisfy me? Like, that's Tom Brady saying that, where we would all say, the culture would say, you have everything anybody could ever want, and yet he's still saying, I'm looking for something more. Look, the reason for that is because you and I have a Jesus-shaped void that only Jesus can fill. Only Jesus is big enough. Only Jesus is beautiful enough. Only Jesus is bountiful enough to fulfill what your soul is yearning for. And so this comparison trap will never get you what you're looking for. Let me just press a little bit more into that. That is is where the rubber meets the road with contentment. That is where most of us, I know for me, that this is where most of us tend to struggle. Because we look at Jesus and we say, all right, I have Jesus but what else can I have? Don't we? We would look at this other person, we think, I've got Jesus, this person has Jesus, but they also have a really nice job, and I want that job. Or they have this great relationship, I want that great relationship. See, this is where, this is where contentment, this is where the war of contentment has to take place in our hearts, where we are confronted with the question, is Jesus truly enough for us, or are we looking for something more to satisfy us? Are we, are we falling into this, this false equation of Jesus plus fill in the blank equals contentment? See, John the Baptist says, no, 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 this joy of mine is now complete. Why? Because his joy is caught up in Jesus. He understands he's the best man, and, and the groom is Jesus. He's fully satisfied in who Jesus is. John's equation for contentment is Jesus, period, equals contentment. And look, that's 
that's where it's so hard. Especially during the holiday season where we're all looking around and we're all seeing the best of people's lives. We're seeing trees that are filled with Christmas presents, family that's getting together, friends that's getting together, this party, this get-together. And those are all good things, but we look at that and we think to ourselves, man, will that satisfy me? Well, I've got Jesus here. My sins are forgiven, but maybe I need something more in order to fulfill me. And it's, it's the comparison trap. In fact, Paul, I think, alluded to that in Philippians chapter 3, where he starts to list all the things that he's accomplished. And then in verse 8, he says, I count everything as loss because of what? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Look, how is that helpful in this war of contentment in our hearts? What Paul is pointing out for us is that Paul knows that in Jesus, he has everything he could ever want or need. That Paul understood that the Christian finds Christ to be sufficient. That the Christian is the richest, most secure person on the face of the planet because even when the storms of our lives come crashing against the walls of our lives, contentment lies safe within. That our contentment is tied up to Christ, not to all these other things that are going on in our life. So John demonstrates this so well for us. He avoids, I think, these four deadly seas to joy, and he shows us the path to contentment. There's one more thing I want to point out here. It comes in verse 30. This is the fourth and final step towards contentment. I think that this is really the secret sauce uh, for contentment. This principle of less of me and more of Jesus. You take that principle into your marriage, man, you're going to find your marriage become so much more healthy. You take this principle into the workplace, into your parenting, into every conversation, less of me, less of this desire to be validated by other people, less of this desire to have the spotlight or to look a certain way, and more of glorifying Jesus. And and that is a symptom of a heart that has found contentment. So I think the reason why Jesus sometimes feels so small in our lives is because we are so big. That oftentimes our lives revolve around the kingdom of self. How can I advance the kingdom of self? How can I promote the kingdom of self instead of dying to self? See, for John the Baptist, he found this joy with Christ as as the best man because he found the freedom of decreasing himself, what Keller calls the freedom of of self-forgetfulness. I think the way that we do this is we identify those selfish agendas. We identify the need to be validated by others, and we cut them out of our lives, and we replace them with Jesus. I love verse 30. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. But man, that is so hard to live out during this season especially. It is so hard during the Christmas season to make room in our hearts for Jesus to be rightly worshipped, and for Jesus to be rightly loved in our lives. I think a really accurate picture of so many of our hearts during this time of year is very similar to the Christmas story. Like when you had Joseph and Mary, they're trying to find a place to stay. You know, Mary's about to give birth to Jesus, and you know, they come to the inn, knock on the door. What does the innkeeper say? He says, there's no room for you. 
or too crowded, too much going on inside. Look, how accurate is that of the condition of our hearts during this time of year where Jesus comes to the door of our hearts and he starts knocking? And, and guess who answers? Not the innkeeper, but the clutter of our lives answer the door. The, the complacency, the, the comparison, the envy, the, those things answer the door to Jesus and say, sorry, Jesus, there's, there's no room for you here. We're full. So often our lives become the inn in what we see in the Gospels. I just want to encourage you today, as you think about verse 30, I just want to encourage you during the Christmas season to make room in your hearts for Jesus, that he's, he's knocking, he's wanting to come in, he's wanting to be worshipped, especially during this time. I encourage you to, to make room for him, to repent and to remove the clutter, even you know, remove our, our overscheduled calendars, our to-do lists, to remove some of the idols that are crowding out room for Jesus, because if we don't, what Jesus might do is exactly what Joseph and Mary did. He might just keep moving on and looking for someone who will welcome him in or there's space for him to be worshipped. Jesus wants to come in, and I think the path for Jesus to come in is the path to contentment. A great place to start if you're wondering, how do I grow in contentment? A great little jumpstart process is to just take five minutes a week and to just write down things that you're thankful for. Write down the things that God has done in your life, turn them into praises to him, and watch your thankfulness grow, watch your satisfaction in Jesus grow, and watch your heart grow in contentment for Jesus. What a great thing to do over the Christmas season to make room for Jesus in our hearts. Don't miss him. A couple days until Christmas is here. He's knocking the door of your heart. Let him in. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for John the Baptist. Again, God, we learned so much about this faithful servant of yours who was so satisfied in Jesus. He knew his role. He knew his limitations. He resisted these temptations. God, help us to be people just like that who are so enamored with Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, that we might be people who are truly content in a, in a time and an age in which the culture around us is screaming, we need more to be satisfied. God, help us to resist that and to say, no, 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 Jesus is enough for us. Help us to live out the principle that less of me means more of him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.